Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Got a lot to talk about on the show today, as we always seem to uh, these days. So let's get right to our panel. I'm really pleased that we're joined today by Tia Mitchell, the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, um, I, a number of people, a number of your colleagues and others have described this week in Washington as Hell Week. And uh, in many ways, it is. It's unbelievable how much is going on up there, most of it related to budget and debt matters, yes? Yeah, and it's just a lot of moving parts, so we're trying to keep up with everything. (laughs) We're going to break it down a bit a little later in the show and try to bring some order to what I know is a complicated uh, story. Uh, We're also joined for the first time today, and I'm really pleased to have her here, by your AJC colleague, Tia, um, Paradise Afshar, who is an immigration community reporter for the AJC. What is that? First of all, welcome, Paradise. It's a pleasure to have you here. What does it mean to be an immigration community reporter? Um, For me, and first of all, thank you for having me. It's like first time on the show, but... For me, it's less about covering the Washington political side and more of the Mm -hmm. human part of immigrants. Because I think a lot of times Mm -hmm. we forget that immigrants are boring people who, you know, just want to go to work, come home and, you know, do their normal stuff. And it's covering that kind of thing. Well, it's good to have the balance between you and Tia today because we're going to talk about immigration and the Biden administration's problems with trying to deal with it right now. And to do that with uh, particular expertise, uh, we're joined by uh, someone who knows both the human side and the legal and legislative side, our friend Chuck Cook, uh, one of the uh, top immigration lawyers in the country. Chuck, how are you? I'm I'm doing great. Uh, you know, your comment to Tia earlier made me think of that meme that you sometimes see on Twitter of the uh, dump truck with the fire in the back. Um, that, that's, <laughs> that's, what this, that's what this week seems like to me. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but let's start with an interesting story, Tia, that um, is good, giving us our first clues about how the new maps in Georgia, the redistricting maps, could be drawn. Republicans yesterday released a first draft of a new uh, congressional map, drawing, redrawing the lines of all of Georgia's congressional districts. And what was particularly interesting about it, Tia, is they, it, we've all been wondering, you've got Democrat Lucy McBath representing the 6th district, Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat representing the 7th, and we've always wondered how Republicans might try to take back one of those seats. And... This map, at least, just a first start, suggests that they believe they can draw lines to take back the Lucy McBath seat, but maybe not the Carolyn Bordeaux seat. Why don't you talk to us about that? Yeah, we knew all along it was going to be hard for Republicans to try to take back both seats. So the 2010 map, 10 years ago, they drew a map that gave Republicans 10 of the four. 10 of 14 seats. 
And then over the 10 years, they lost two of those seats. So now Republicans have eight of the 14 seats. And, you know, this map would help them get to nine. Um, and so we knew they would it would be unlikely for them to get back to 10. And again, this map gets them possibly to nine. And so they had to pick. Do they make the sixth district, which is McBath district, more conservative, or do they make the seventh district, which is Bordeaux's district, more conservative? And in this map, which, as you said, it's just a proposal, it's one idea, it's the first idea, it's very likely to change, but perhaps in small ways, but it goes after the sixth, makes it much more conservative, but I would say it doesn't put it out of the question. You know, it adds Forsyth County, which is redder than, you know, a Gwinnett or a Cobb. But Forsyth County is one of those exurban counties that itself is growing uh, more diverse and therefore less conservative itself. Um, but it still would make it harder for McBath to hold on in the six. It also, yeah, um, uh, I Chuck, think, mm-hmm, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please finish. I was going to say, you know, we had when we were talking before the show talked about how the seventh is more compact. It's entirely in Gwinnett County, which makes it solidly, you know, makes it more much more Democratic leaning, but also more diverse. It could put pressure for someone else to for a primary challenge of Bordeaux, because I don't know you guys, the listeners should remember in 2020, that was a something that Bordeaux faced is that as a white woman, was she the right person to represent this district? Yeah, that's a good point. That it, it, so, Chuck, uh, uh, I think Tia said several things that are important. Number one, the reason that uh, the 7th could be more safe uh, as a Democratic district and the 6th less safe is because of Forsyth County. What this map does is it shifts much of Forsyth over to the 6th district so uh, uh, that's where Lucy McBath would have to contend for votes. But Chuck Tia also makes an important point. Carolyn Bordeaux is seen as a moderate Democrat. And the fact of the matter is, if that is going to be a solid Democratic district, there's no doubt a progressive Democrat might come in and try to challenge her there. Oh, I think 100 percent she's facing a primary challenge, uh, especially if she sticks with the, quote, moderate stance that she's had uh, in holding up uh, the Biden agenda uh, this last month, uh, if that's held against her, it's 100 percent she's going to get challenged from the from the left. I don't I don't know if she loses that challenge, but it certainly weaken, weakens her in a general election because I think she'll feel more compelled to move to the left and out of the middle. And, you know, that may cost her some some independent votes at, at, on, on Election Day. Lucy is my congresswoman. I live in the 6th. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Forsyth, both of my law partners live in Forsyth County. Uh, Forsyth County of 2021 and 2022 is not the Forsyth County of 2010. Um, and I think uh, Tia makes a really good point. This, this may lose Lucy the seat, but I think it's going to be a really close election either way. Paradise, I think this is worth uh, picking up on a little bit here in terms of the immigrant populations of both uh, of Gwinnett and now a little bit more of Forsyth County. Right now, Gwinnett County is about 25-plus percent foreign-born, at least that's according to the last census. Um, and, and so that's a significant population. Um, and the, 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 the question here, though, is— while those voters have been mostly lining up as Democrats, certainly in 2020, Hispanic votes, for instance, went to Democrats. 
Um, Asian votes, you know, always kind of um, um, uncertain about where those votes are going to line up. It, it's kind of increasingly a mistake to assume that a foreign-born, an immigrant population is automatically going to be in the Democratic camp. Isn't it paradise? Absolutely. I think that just basing it on where you're where you happen to be born does not affect your vote, in my opinion. I think it is voting has a lot to do with your other traits that you may look into, your gender, your religion, the street you're on. And hey, maybe I think that this candidate's better for education on this part of town rather than that candidate. I think the mistake that a lot of politicians make is looking at immigrants like a monolith. And thinking, very mistakenly thinking that the only issues that immigrants worry about are foreign issues and not directing domestic issues to them. So I'll be really interested to see how these candidates direct their messages to those immigrant populations and if they expand their conversations beyond immigration. Uh, Tia, for our listeners down in South Georgia, uh, we should say that this first map protects Sanford Bishop. Uh, down there in the southeast corner of the state. You know, it's always been amazing to me. I mean, there's a, a, a significant African-American population there, of course, but Sanford has held on for how many decades has he now been in the U.S. House? I should look up the number of years. It's been a very, very long time. Uh, and he holds on in a district that at times, you know, has rural components that could have elected a Republican, but he's going to be safe almost certainly no matter how the district is drawn, right? Yes. And he's been in the House of Representatives since 1993. Um, okay. So we're coming up on, what, 30, 40 years? 30 years. 30 years. Um, I will say that— I remember him when he was young. Because, <laughs> right. You know, um, you know, it's harder, though, because— his district is considered one of those districts created to allow people of color to choose the representative of their choice. And so mm -hmm. there are additional uh, legal protections. There would be additional kind of calculations that the map makers in the General Assembly would have to make if they wanted to uh, change the boundaries and make the seat more competitive. So I think it was better for them to just leave him alone. Okay, this is only the start. We are going to have weeks and weeks of conversations, especially as we move toward the first week in November when the redistricting session begins, looking at all sorts of maps and all sorts of potentials for how the, the state is going to be redrawn. And that's one of the things about Political Rewind that I think you appreciate, that we try to dig in to stories like redistricting and keep you informed with really smart analysts like the people on the show today. All of that is my lead into saying we continue in our fall pledge drive here at GPB Radio. We continue to hope for your support. We hope you think enough of us that you want to support us financially. And if you do, here's how you can make that happen. AJC Washington reporter, Porter Tia Mitchell, uh, immigration community reporter, Paradise Afshar, and Chuck Cook, immigration attorney extraordinaire, are our panelists on today's uh, show. By the way, I do a quick piece of information that I thought was fascinating in terms of our conversation about Gwinnett County. Uh, if you look at data about the languages that people in Gwinnett speak, it turns out that fewer people 
speak English only, something like 34,000, then speak Asian and Pacific Island languages, certainly Spanish, and other Indo-European languages, which is kind of a remarkable thing when uh, you think about the English, English-speaking people uh, are represented less than those who speak other languages, according to um, census data from 2015 to 2019. Uh, Chuck Cook, let's talk more about immigration now, if we may. Um, first of all, the Haitian border crisis. Uh, I know that at times on this show, you've resisted allowing me to use the word crisis to talk about what's happening at the border. But when we saw those totally dispiriting images of Haitian refugees underneath a bridge crowding to try to get refugee status to come into the United States legally, uh, and then when you saw the pictures of the horse, the, the, uh, the immigration uh, patrol folks on horses, uh, uh, using their horses to round up uh, refugees. It's it's hard not to think of that as a crisis, Chuck, just oh, I, from I, a humane point of view. Bill, I, I would call what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago definitely a crisis, uh, but it's gone now. Um, everybody's either been uh, admitted to the U.S. I think of the 14,000 people that uh, ended up crossing the border at that very open place across the river uh, ended up uh, staying in the United States, about nine, about four uh, were um, sent back to Mexico. And I think, well, maybe there were 20,000, and about five, four or 5,000 were actually sent to Haiti, which I found actually repulsively a terrible thing, terrible thing to do by the Biden administration. Uh, they were clearly caught off guard by this. This is not a sector of the border, of the border where there are a lot of undocumented crossings. Uh, and as people talk about why they went to Del Rio, and it's, it, it turns out that, first of all, most of these refugees actually had been living in Brazil and South America for years. They'd actually fled mm. Haiti in the last terrible earthquake that occurred uh, back in the teens. Uh, and um, they, they heard that there was an opportunity to come to the United States. The, you know, the game of telephone is very active in immigration. The Biden administration says we're not going to deport Haitians to Haiti because the country's going to hell in a handbasket. The president gets killed. Um, they have a earthquake. And he, people hear, oh, I can go to America. You know, the game of, game of telephone is how, how that works. So they show up at the border, and they, they are told, look, if you cross down uh, further south, you have to pay the, the narco traffickers there money to cross. But the narcos in charge of Del Rio, they don't charge you. So that's why they all ended up in one singular place uh, in, uh, in Del Rio, Texas. And wholly unprepared for it. Uh, that's, it's been interesting because the, the, the government of Mexico has helped the Biden administration uh, resettle people in Mexico. Um, the governor of the state that's uh, there south of Del Rio has been very welcoming to them. Uh, and uh, the Biden administration followed the law, at least in certain respects, in allowing people who had claims for asylum to stay and process those claims as the law requires. The only terrible part was the actual deportation of people to Haiti back to places they hadn't been in, in almost a decade with, you know, a crumbling infrastructure and a non-existent economy. But Paradise, when we see the images, you know, Chuck Cook points out that situation has been cleared up in, in some ways, some of it humanely, other ways not so much. Uh, but perception matters. And we continue to look at the border and the inability of a Democratic, a Republican, any administration to do something to bring order to our immigration policies 
and, and to be able to deal with these people in a way that is both humane, legal, and respectful of Americans who have uh, views about this, too. Paradise? You know, I, I grew up in South Florida, and, you know, when you grow up down there, it's very common to, in the news, or especially in the 2000s, of people coming over from Haiti and people coming over from Cuba. And I understand at the point there's wet foot, dry foot. But you saw and really understood the difference between the way Haitians were treated when they came over. And those same things that they were crying about, crying about, you know, like outraged about two decades ago are the exact same things that people are upset about today. It's what's being perceived as unfair treatment. It's what, why are we being held to a standard that other immigrants may not be held to? You know, at the time, 20 years ago, it was Cubans are political refugees, Haitians are economic refugees. And now we're hearing the same echoes of that over and over again. And it just won't stop for Haitians. It's, I mean, these people are leaving places in South America, like Chile and Brazil, that are kicking them out because their, their governments don't want them there. And what do you do when your government doesn't want you there? You seek safer borders. And you're going to come to America or you're going to come to wherever land that you think is going to accept you. And to be sent back after a decade of not being there, I think that's, that is inhumane. And I think that that's something that we do need to address. These are thousands of people who are, whose livelihoods, what do you do when you land in Haiti? Tia, the, uh, the Biden administration suffered a real setback. They had hoped to include their immigration reform measures in the reconciliation bill and get it through that way. They knew they were never going to get support in the U.S. Senate to pass legislation, but the uh, nonpartisan Senate parliamentarian disallowed it. She said, no, this does not work. And so the Biden administration in that way is back to ground zero and has to look at more incremental measures to do something. Yeah, and... I think it was always a long shot to allow something so policy driven as immigration to be put in the reconciliation bill because the Senate rules do require reconciliation bills to be focused on funding issues. That's part of the kind of weird rules for what can and can't be in there. Um, But of course, it makes it harder for Biden because, yes, Republicans are attacking his immigration policy, but we also know they are going to block any attempt for comprehensive immigration reform. Republicans are doing both. And I also just we would be remiss to say there is a racial element underlying every one of these issues, the way Haitian people are treated differently than the Cuban people, and that people who are browner coming from other countries are treated different than um, immigrants from not just Cuba, but even European immigration is different than South American immigration or African nations. And that's, you know, that goes back to the fabric of our nation and it goes back to racial elements that that have persisted long before the modern immigration kind of uh, debacle. But I just want to make sure we 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 touch on that. Chuck. Amen. That's all I can tell you. I mean, this is not more evident than in the diversity lottery program. Uh, we actually prevailed last week on a on a nationwide case involving tens of thousands of diversity lottery recipients. And 
The diversity lottery is the primary source of immigration for Africa and Asia. And uh, while there are some European countries that, are, that do win the lottery, what we saw both in the late in this lottery, which is the last fiscal year, both in the half in the Trump administration and half in the Biden administration, is that both administrations allowed for European diversity lottery winners to process in a relatively normal manner. But Africa was essentially shut down and remained shut down. Um, and uh, the Asian countries also remain shut down. And but for the judge ordering visa reservations, which is going to happen tomorrow, uh, African immigration will be non-existent this year. So this is this is clearly racially driven, but it's also extraordinarily frustrating, Bill. I've, I've been involved in immigration a long time, and we've been seeking you know, modern 21st century changes to immigration law for 21 years. And Congress literally fiddles while Rome burns. It's, you know, it's just extraordinarily frustrating. Uh, Chuck, before we run out of time for immigration, uh, just a quick uh, a couple of minutes on the fact that the Biden administration is trying to overcome now a federal judge in Texas who ruled that DACA was essentially illegal because it was created independent from any real regulatory uh, 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 status. And it, it you know, the. the the Obama administration simply said, we're going to have DACA. It, it, the, the federal judge said, those who are here can remain here, but they're not going to have any new registrations. But the Biden administration yesterday announced a plan that they say they hope will overcome the objections of the federal judge. You don't think they went far enough. Well, they didn't, they didn't really do anything other than just reauthorize the existing DACA program, uh, which allows children under the age of 16 who came here before 2007 to get a work card and not be deported for two years. That's all DACA is. The Biden administration could easily have moved the date and said, you know what, we're going to put the date at 2016 or 2018. We're going to raise the age of the 18. They're writing a regulation. They are literally writing the law. Now, thank goodness they're doing it, because that is the reason Judge Hannon struck down DACA. Um, but at the end of the day, they went, it did, they did the bare minimum and a little bit less is what they did with DACA. They could have done so much more, especially coming immediately on the heels of the parliamentarian, a former ICE deportation lawyer, by the way, um, of striking down DACA reform. So there you go, the, the bare minimum and a little less. Uh, I got to take our final pledge break of the show. When we come back, we'll have a lot of time to talk. And and when we do come back, I want to add, add one element to the immigration conversation, and that's uh, what's happening with Afghan ref refugees and uh, here in Georgia and basically across the country. Um, we will get to that. Before we do, I just would ask you one more time. First of all, if you are already a supporter of GPB Radio, if you give a, if give to us financially for Political Rewind, I can't tell you how grateful I am. Uh, if you're not, here's a way you can get involved. Paradise Afshar, when uh, the Taliban were completing their takeover of Afghanistan, the entire country, you wrote pretty movingly about how people here, Afghan uh, living in Georgia and metro Atlanta, were reacting uh, to that. And, uh, and, and I think we need to talk for just a minute about what the refugee situation is. Um, what, what is the likelihood that there are going to be sponsors here, that people are going to take in uh, refugees. How is that shaping up for Georgia? I noted that the federal, that the Canadian government just yesterday announced they were doubling 
the number of Afghan refugees they were allowing into Canada. I don't know what the situation is here. Um, I want to say, and I could have my numbers wrong, so someone please, um, but I want to say that there's, at the end of the month, I think they said about 65,000 refugees were expected to come to the United States and about an additional 40,000, 34,000 by the end of the year. And Atlanta is one of the locations that refugees will be coming to. Um, how many? I haven't heard any numbers directly yet, but I do know that there are four main um, resettlement organizations in Atlanta. And these resettlement organizations are prepared and they're ready to take people in. Um, one of the big hits that they've taken, all of them, has been um, the last administration because there's fewer refugees coming in. You have fewer workers at these places. So it's staffing is an issue, um, not across the board, but it is an issue. You do need people to help bring people in. Once people are inside the country, they really only have about six months to get everything together, get their jobs, get their lives in order, a place to stay that's steady. And the main goal is independence. So it's not just bringing them here, but having the resources and infrastructure available to support them for those six months before they can get on the feet. You know, Bill, Atlanta has been historically a wonderful resettlement community for people from all over the world. Bosnians came here back in the 90s, and uh, of course, Clarkston is kind of the refugee capital of the South, but it's really been very welcoming. Uh, uh, churches have stepped forward, organizations that are, are gearing up. You know, you did mention, and, and, and Paradise talked about this briefly, that the, uh, the Trump administration had lowered refugee levels to the lowest level since uh, we began the refugee program. But in 2021, of which Joe Biden was president for nine months, is the lowest year for refugees. Yeah. Uh, the Biden administration has let in virtually no refugees until the Afghans began coming. Uh, so, you know, the, the, there wasn't an immediate build back up with these with these agencies who need refugees to maintain their staff as they as people get resettled. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is when we when we as a country resettle refugees, we essentially give them a few hundred dollars a month. We give them housing for about six months and then we say, good luck. And that's it. That's all our federal government does. So what happens after that initial time frame really depends on the community. And I think a lot of these agencies will be reaching out to the communities through churches and, and organizational groups for help, uh, not, not necessarily for money, but for jobs and, 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 and clothing and furniture to get these folks resettled. And I think that's what Atlantans and Georgians really excel at. Okay, we're going to keep our eye on that. We did want to take that up while we have both Paradise and uh, Chuck Cook here for a moment. But, you know, I want to, in the last uh, moment, well, we have a good good amount of time, fortunately, to talk about it. Uh, Tia, oh, I don't know that I envy you in your beat right now. You've got a lot on your plate. And if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to kind of try to unpack what I think are four different puzzle pieces that are in play this week on Capitol Hill, but that are kind of confusing to most of us out here who watch this from afar, unlike you. Um, and here's what the New York Times, how the New York Times described it in, in uh, their lead this morning. In, in a pivotal week, in a make-or-break stretch for President Biden's domestic agenda, congressional Democrats are trying to assemble a puzzle of four jagged pieces that may or may not fit together. Okay, Tia, piece one is that on October 1st, 
the government no longer has the authority to continue uh, paying its bills. Funding stops because, because, as usual, Congress has not passed a funding bill for any aspect of, of the government. Now, typically, typically, I mean, this happens frequently, but typically we have continuing resolutions which allow the government to continue operating for a period of time, quite often a long period of time. The problem is this time, number one, Republicans don't want any part of this, uh, of passing a continuing resolution, and that's because Democrats have added a second puzzle piece to the continuing resolution. They want to increase the debt limit at the same time. The debt limit does not pay for programs moving forward. It merely is a, me- a mechanism by which you increase the amount of debt you can take on to pay for things you've already spent money on. So that's the second piece of the puzzle. Let's talk about just those before we move on, Tia. Yeah, and so the House passed a bill last week that funds the government, so avoiding a government shutdown, raises the debt limit so that um, – because right now – in like mid-October, I think the latest date is October 18th, the, after that day, there's no more capacity. It's almost like the limit on your credit card. And so uh, you'll reach, the federal government will reach that limit October 18th unless Congress authorizes, you know, the government to increase its, you know, you know how you call your credit card company and increase it. That's what they're giving authority mm-hmm. to do. But that bill also includes a couple of other things: disaster relief, because we've had some recent hurricanes and other and and things like that. It also includes more money for the Afghan resettlement. Again, so everything can pass except the debt limit thing. That's as you mentioned, where Republicans have put their foot down and said, hey, Democrats, if you want to increase the debt ceiling because you want to continue borrowing, then you do it on your own. Don't expect us to do it. Take it out of this bill, and we're going to filibuster the bill. We like everything else in it, but we're going to filibuster and vote no. And Democrats say that's not fair because guess what's contributing to the debt limit? The Trump tax cuts, stuff that we've done all over the years for Usually we raise the debt limit in a bipartisan way because Republicans and Democrats together have contributed to our national debt. And so Democrats are saying, no, we're going to keep it all together because we think you should pass it. Well, yesterday they tried. The the Republicans in the Senate used the filibuster. So the question is, do they separate the two, take the debt limit stuff out, because that's what Republicans are mad at, go ahead and pass the other stuff, We'll know by Thursday. If it doesn't happen by Thursday, as you mentioned, uh, partial government shutdown on Friday, you'll have a lot, thousands of federal government workers working for no pay. And what also goes into this this week is our two other measures, the infrastructure bill, the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, which President Biden introduced and which both Democrats and Republicans say they want to pass. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has promised there will be a vote on that by Thursday. Uh, She initially was going to take it up yesterday. But you've got progressive Democrats saying, no, 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 we don't want to do the infrastructure bill separate from the social policy $3.5 trillion measure that the president has introduced. And that gets all very confusing as well. Um, And we'll talk about this a couple of times this week to continue trying to unwind all of this. But Chuck, in the meantime, 
This is uh, Mitch McConnell's refusal, refusal to take any responsibility for, especially for the debt limit, uh, raising the debt limit, which certainly was partly uh, because of what the Trump administration did, uh, is about as naked a political ploy as you could imagine. When you say the word naked political ploy, an image of Mitch McConnell actually comes to my mind. Uh, this is um, not unusual. This is a game that he is an expert at. He's an expert at politics. What's stunning, though, is this is not about politics. This is about the good faith and credit of the United States. This is about the federal government continuing to operate going forward after uh, starting on Friday. Uh, why do why do we want to be in this position? Uh, when did it stop being good politics? to do things that are good for America. When, when did that happen? When did owning the libs or winning a political argument mean more than protecting the United States? Honestly, I can't understand it at this point. Uh, Tio, the, the failure to raise the debt uh, ceiling uh, and, and, and all that accompanies it uh, could put the government in default. And, there is t- and, and beyond everything else, there are terrible concerns about the markets, about what message this sends, about the good faith of the American government to pay its bills. This has potential to be catastrophic to you, and I don't think I'm being overly dramatic. No, you're not. Um, you know, the last time uh, a few years ago, it didn't happen, but the U.S. came close to, you know, a similar impact on raising the debt limit, and it destabilized markets across the globe. And because, you know, U.S. government is such a power player in financial markets, does a lot of borrowing, you know, from other countries and all types of stuff. So it's that's why Democrats are saying, you know, we've got to do something um, But Democrats are also saying it's unfair for Republicans to put us in a box where the only way we avoid this kind of catastrophic outcome is if we pass a measure without Republicans putting skin in the game. So that's the impasse. And it's like, who's going to blink first? Are are Democrats and Republicans are just banking on Democrats saying we're not going to allow this to happen. So we're going to do it, even though we think it's it's not fair that Republicans are making us do it alone. Um, so, but we don't know. So, so I do think, Paradise, one of the things we should say here is that this is a game of chicken. Somehow in, in these previous crises, a resolution is usually reached, although we got to say uh, not before in any number of cases over the last decades, government shutdowns took place, which, by the way, didn't do Republicans a whole lot of good back in the Gingrich days when Gingrich <laughs> shut the government down twice. But Paradise, we do, to get away from the doom-mongering, we will watch this week to see if somebody blinks and we do get some resolution. Absolutely. And I'm hoping it comes because people need it, especially when we look at what will be a huge influx of immigrant of refugees coming in, but also, you know, with how we deal with the border and how we deal with, you know, we don't want another humanitarian crisis or something we won't call a humanitarian crisis, but it isn't like we don't want any more of those. And I think part of that is exactly what you said was re-looking at this rather than a win of politics and more of what's best for people. And hopefully just a rewind to that. Uh, Chuck, um, 
it, it is going to be fascinating. I, I said we go back to the 1990s. Gingrich, as Speaker, shut down the government twice. He, what, for Up until 2019, when the Trump administration shut it down, longest shutdown, 21 days, right around Christmas time. And it cost, it cost Republicans and Gingrich their power in the U.S. House. It's, uh, it's that some people think this is a good thing. I don't get it. I, frankly, what the Democrats should do, they should just go ahead. You know what? We're going to be the adults in the room. We're going to raise the debt limit, and we're going to raise it to a gazillion dollars. And then the issue goes away. I mean, just why, but, why but, are they but, but, Tia, but, doing but, it? But, 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 Tia, the, but then, Tia, the question becomes, and we're really running out of time, how Republicans use that in the 2022 election cycle to really clobber Democrats. And whether all of us out here are, you know, sophisticated enough about our understanding of this to see what's happening, it could hurt Democrats. Right. And that's what this all boils down to, that Democrats are saying it's not easy for them to raise the debt limit either, but they want to do it for the good of the country and Republicans won't do the same. That's what Democrats are saying. All right. We are completely out of time for our conversation. I got to tell you, I, I am amazed at how much really smart uh, observations uh, you all were able to make about a variety of really important subjects in our slightly more limited time, given our, our pledge drive right now. But I am so grateful to all three of you uh, for being here uh, today. Chuck Cook, always a pleasure. Tia Mitchell, good luck with the rest of your week on the Hill. You won't be getting a lot of sleep, I imagine. Uh, and also Paradise Afshar, thanks for being here. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll come back sometime. That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Back again, of course, with a new show tomorrow. Um, I'm going to turn you back over to our pledge team in just a minute. But before I do, I want to remind you to please take care, stay healthy, continue to wear your mask when you're in situations where people could be spreading the virus. Tell everybody it's time to get a vaccine. And yes, go get the flu shot, too. That's a lot to deal with. But we can all do it. See you tomorrow. <laughs>